Hi, welcome to Pitt Town Church. We are so glad that you're listening to this podcast. We pray that this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus. If you would like more information, check out our website at www.pitttownchurch.com. We're going to be reading from the Bible now. Um, We're looking at Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 57, and it should hopefully come up on the screen nicely. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 57. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she had a son. Then her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her his great mercy, and they rejoiced with her. When they came to circumcise the child on the eighth day, they were going to name him Zachariah after his father. But his mother responded, no, he will be called John. Then they said to her, none of your relatives has that name. So they motioned to his father to find out what he wanted him to be called. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they were all amazed. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came on all those who lived around them, and all these things were being talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. All who heard about him took it to heart, saying, What then will this child become? For indeed the Lord's hand was with him. Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times, salvation from our enemies and from the clutches of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. He has given us the privilege since we have been rescued from our enemies' clutches to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And child, you will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew up and became spiritually strong, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Evening, everyone. My right ear is shot, so I wasn't too sure if the music finished and there's the cue for me to start, so it has, hasn't it? Oh, good. Well, it is great to be here, and it's great for about the um, third time today to hear that new song, What He's Done. Because as I was just looking at those words, and I don't know what your impression of it was, um, it just resonated with everything that um, I've been looking at in this uh, passage from uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to 80. And uh, I think God arranged that. And also with the Lord's Supper, there's a number of things that uh, we, we talked about and we prayed about, which also comes up tonight as well. Um, God brings all things together. He does. And I'm going to ask him, uh, I know uh, Sally's already prayed for us, so uh, as we listen to God's word and, and think it through, I've got a special prayer for me as well. Heavenly Father, please guard and guide what I say. 
help me to make sense, help it to be true, and help it to be uh, relevant and important for each one of us that we might go out of this uh, into this week more prepared to be your children. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm looking at a totally different congregation than the others that I've been seeing. So I'm going I'm to say a name and I'm going to be looking and seeing what sort of reaction I get from people. Johnny Cash. Oh, some nods. Oh, okay. But they are from the people who are, I better be careful, over 20. Okay, Johnny Cash. Uh, he wrote a, a, a song. It's a famous song called A Boy Named Sue. And uh, some of you might be, I'm not going to um, read out any of the lyrics, but uh, I'll give you a, a pricey of it. Um, his father wanted him to grow up tough, so he called him Sue. And uh, I think it, according to the song, it, it was very effective. He certainly grew up tough. Uh, what's the story behind your name? Do you know it? Now, it might be... If, there other, if there's any other Johns in here, I apologise. It might be boring like mine. Uh, John, I was named after my father. And sometimes a name is selected from, say, a special book. It could be the Bible or the Koran or Harry Potter. Uh, sometimes a name uh, comes from a, a famous person, whether it be fictitious or real, you know, whoever's the uh, flavour of the year. Um, I've uh, met several Hermiones, which is really inter interesting. I have not met, in, met any Voldemorts, uh, except there's one at Glow, I, I wonder. No. Uh, sometimes, uh, please, is this, this isn't being recorded, so it's okay. And parents, I'm sorry. Uh, sometimes a name expresses some kind of value that the parents want in their child, like hope and faith, and they're pretty cool names. Sometimes <clears throat> it's because a name is, and I, I just love this word, I, have, I just want to say it, it's euphonic. It's a beautiful word, isn't it? Euphonic. And it means it just sounds nice. And does anyone have a name that they think is euphonic or euphonious? Do you reckon? I'm looking around the room and I think the one that jumps out at me is Juanita. It is, isn't it euphonic? It's, it's, yeah, it's got that sort of feel for it. And um, getting back to the passage, uh, I want to give the backs. Was that someone said something? Oh, good. This is my one ear working, okay? It sounded like a really old person. Uh, let's, let's go... Uh, to the backstory of the passage that uh, we had read out to us, I want to start off with uh, three important facts about the child who would be known as John the Baptist. One, God gave Elizabeth and Zechariah's son his name, which was conveyed through the angel Gabriel, and I think that's good enough reason to make sure you call your child that particular name, if that's your particular circumstance, isn't it? Uh, number two, John, or I don't really know, I think it's something like this in Hebrew, uh, Yachanan, means God is gracious or graced by God, something like that. 
And uh, the third thing about this, this child that it's important to actually grab hold of is that John will do what every godly Jew dreamed of. And to actually think that you have a child who achieves this would be, ah, oh, it would be absolutely the dream come true. It's in chapter 1, verse 16, which Gabriel tells Zechariah. He, that is his son-to-be, will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, that is the Lord their God, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared name, a prepared people. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 13, Zechariah, he has now been visited by the, ark, the angel Gabriel and he's, told, uh, he's been told uh, by the angel and he's uh, uh, apparently, uh, he must have told his wife and it, it would have been one of those really difficult moments because if you're in your childbearing years and you want a child, to get news like that would be absolutely wonderful. I would imagine. Um, but these were past the expected childbearing phase of their lives. You know, it's when people thought, I have now come to this phase in life, I don't have to worry, I might have to worry about grandchildren, but children and everything, you know, getting nappies and stuff like that. Um, Zechariah and Elizabeth are put back into that situation. They are now going to have a son and this is, we are told, in Luke, an answer to prayer, to their prayer to God. Well, God's given them what they asked for. But Zechariah's response is not actually totally positive. This is what you don't say if you're in Zechariah's position. I doubt if he ever will be. Not exactly like this. How can I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. That's, that's, a very, that's as politically correct as Zechariah is ever going to get about his wife. She is well along in years. He's an old man. She's well along in years. And if you think through the question, he's saying something like, I want a sign before the sun arrives. Now, I would have thought... Within the normal time that a child uh, is conceived and is going to be born, um, that would be a giveaway anyway, that the son is going to be born soon. That will be the sign. But Zechariah wants to know now, um, for whatever reason, that is, before the prophecy comes true. Now, what's wrong with that? Maybe you were wondering that when you first uh, heard it uh, the last couple of weeks and you're looking at Mary's reply and what's the difference? Well, his question is dangerously close to the demand that the Pharisees and the Sadducees made to Jesus when they said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 1, show us a sign from heaven. That is, give us a sign, a miracle, so we know that you are from God. And by the way, uh, by Matthew 16, Jesus has already done quite a few miracles. 
and they're asking for another. They want something really, really, really spectacular. They want something from heaven coming down. And Jesus' response is, in summary, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. And that's where Zechariah's question is really heading. Now, there's two important things to remember about Zechariah. Uh, the first is that in chapter 1, verse 6, Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's sight, living without blame, according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. They sound a fairly godly couple, don't they? So what happened? That's the second point. <clears throat> Zechariah is still a sinner who is capable of doubting God's word even when delivered by God's angel. And like all of God's people throughout time, when we are confronted with our sin, we need to turn away from sin and turn to God. Zechariah had, and I think this is going to be the problem for Christians in any country, in any time, they can easily get caught up in the spirit of the age, of what is acceptable, of what is appropriate, of what is right and what is wrong. Or, as Jesus puts it, this spirit of the age is an evil and wicked generation. Because they demand what they have no right to demand from God. But, as we have we've read the passage so we know where it's going, God is gracious and John is born. Uh, and that leads us to verse 59. Zechariah has been struck mute. He loses his power of speech, and it seems like his hearing has gone as well. I can really relate to that at the moment. <clears throat> Until eight days after his son is born, and now they are about to circumcise their young Jewish baby. And the circumcision is a symbol of entering into the covenant family of Abraham and, more importantly, into the family of the God of Abraham. And the crowd, which Luke tells us is made up of their neighbours and their relatives, they're coming together for a local bash to celebrate this new baby, they can't get their minds around the fact that Elizabeth's announcement of the baby's name is not Zechariah Jr. They're really expecting someone who is in Zechariah's family. And as a matter of Zechariah would have been a great name, it means God remembers. Uh, but Elizabeth, while Zechariah is mute and un unable to say anything, she says, no, it's going to be John. And they're still not happy with that. So they have to go through the process of... We wouldn't bat an eye about it. And we've got a great example right here today, right here tonight, a new name in the family tradition, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We have Arlo. 
And you want to know what the history of the name Arlo is? So would I. <laughs> and, and so would they. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. It's, it's a new name. It's, it's, it is sort of euphonic though, isn't it? Yeah, it is euphonic. Uh, um, I'm going to use that word as much as um, Craig is using Gert. I don't think I'll be able to get that in though. Um, uh, what, what happens is, uh, for us, we wouldn't bat an eye, but in first century Palestinian Hebrew culture, it just wasn't done. So they're not taking Elizabeth's word for, for it. So they, the Bible says, motioned to his father. That is, he can't hear, so they're, they're doing this sort of charades type thing to find out what he wanted his son to be called. And they did this celebrity charades game. And after a while, um, Zechariah uh, calls for his... Uh, th this is a, a, a first century whiteboard. It's an... A very rare archaeological artifact and uh, you can see there this is Zechariah's reply he scratches on it his name is John and in the Greek he's actually got a real cool way of being able to emphasize it's John guys your family relatives it's John no matter what you say it's going to be John because at this point Zechariah is putting his foot down he's nailing his colors to the mast no more doubt, no more compromise. Zechariah, I think, has changed. And he's been mute, so he hasn't been able to express it, but now he's able to express it. Elizabeth and Zechariah choose obedience to God over the pressure of the crowd and over the pressure of the custom. Uh, can you do that? Can you go against the pressure of the crowd and the pressure of custom? when it's really going to be difficult. It's a godly and always a wise thing to go against the crowd and go against custom if it means you're going to be with God. You, you, it's the wise thing to go against custom, to go against the crowd, when if you didn't do it, it would mean you'd be going against God. What you see is a shift in Zechariah's thinking here from doubting God's truth, which is expressed in his really, now you can see it, it's a dumb question that he's asking. It's, a, it's an untrusting question. It's a, it's a bad doubting question to a trusting faith in God, which is expressed in his obedience just by saying, no, his name is John. And it's acknowledged by God in verse 64, immediately, <clears throat> His mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. That word immediately, every one of the, uh, the gospel writers, they've got fave words. And this is one of Luke's fave words, immediately. He, it occurs uh, about a dozen times in both Luke and, you know, he did volume two. It's called Acts. Outside of those two books, it's only used twice in the New Testament. It's his favourite word. Mark is another word that's translated immediately, but it's a totally different Greek word. So it's, it's just it's something just to be aware of. So when you're going through look, uh, Luke, look for immediately. Um, it's usually linked to when Jesus does a miraculous sign in the Gospel of Luke. And it's also when Gospels are done in the name of Jesus, 
in the book of Acts. In the beginning, Zechariah's doubt was shown to be unfounded because the baby arrived and he needed to be corrected. But when God is on the move, fulfilling his promises, he does it in a way that you can't ignore. It's there in your face, a new baby. They are instant, they are immediate, and in God's perfect timing. He was waiting. Zechariah was waiting for this. He wanted to push God to say, give me more data. I need more data. And God said, no, you don't. I've given you all the data you need. Do you believe that God has really got this world, this universe, so much in the palm of his hand that there's nothing that happens that he is not in control of, that there's no random, rogue, atom, molecule somewhere that's doing its own thing and God doesn't notice? Do you know what we're actually talking about when we say is God is omniscient and knows all things and he is omnipotent, he is all-powerful? Can you think of the ramifications of what it really means? And when you grab hold of that, what it means for how much you can rest in that knowledge. Zechariah was getting there. Zechariah was given a lesson he would never forget and he had the steepest learning, I I presume, he had the steepest learning curve in his life at that time. And look how God uses him next. In the next section, 67 to 75, this section is often called the Benedictus. Now, if you happen to be, and again, uh, there was a lot more nods at some of the earlier um, services, but if you happen to have experienced some of the older style Uh, Anglican services that are based on the uh, Anglican prayer book, the 1662, there will be a little section that's got um, Benedictus and people would actually say it out loud nearly every week. It was part of the the morning prayers that was usually um, either in some churches said with everyone standing or sung straight after the New Testament reading. Some of you, this is the first time you've actually heard it. So you're seeing it with fresh eyes. Some of you maybe have actually had experienced reading it week after week after week in the past. Again, this is an opportunity for us to actually stop for a moment and say, let's listen to it properly and don't just go on rote and actually hear what's happening. The first thing we find about this this song, this poem that Zechariah comes out with in verse 67, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. That means the next things he's going to say is totally in the control of what God wants him to say, while at the same time allowing Zechariah to use his emotions and use his vocabulary and use his memories of everything that he's read about in the Old Testament together to bless, or in this case, it's uh, the word bless, um, it also means, it means praising God. When God blesses you, he's giving you things that we need. When we bless God, we're actually acknowledging that he has given us what we need. It's the same word, but a different perspective. We can't really give anything to God that God needs. 
but he says of us that we are to come together and praise him. And that is what is appropriate for beings who have been blessed by God. God the Holy Spirit is directing Zechariah to bless or praise God by going back to the major promises that are in the Old Testament that were made by God. He's using the language, he's using the images of the Old Testament. We're so familiar with that now, aren't we, as we've been already looking at a couple of weeks in Luke. Uh, the Lord God has visited and redeemed his people. That's the first thing we find in this, this uh, song. The word visited, <clears throat> have you visited anyone this week? Have you visited anyone like God visited here? The word visited, it can just mean, you know, you go in and you say hi. But in this case, the word visited is not just saying that God is popping in and saying hi. It carries the idea of inspecting something, going to somewhere, going to someone and evaluating in order to help that person. It's the word this visiting word that is used by Jesus in Matthew 25, verse 36, when he's talking about his disciples and he's saying, this is how I want you to love one another. I want you just to recognise that if you love a brother or sister in Christ who are my disciples, my little ones, you're doing it just as if you're doing it for me. And so he says this, Matthew 25, 36. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Going to visit someone in prison is not just popping in and say hi, especially in a first century setting where um, the reason why they're in prison is because they've done something that the hierarchy is not happy with and anyone who visits the prisoner is going to be suspect. It's a dangerous thing to do. And he's saying, I was in prison and you visited me. Great, that's what you're supposed to be doing. That's not a casual visit. It's going to cost, especially in those days. Now, I have a story about myself, sort of, um, no, I have not been in prison. Um, in my single days, I lived in a rented farmhouse slash cottage that you could, could describe as rustic. Uh, maybe closer to run down would be the expression. And it actually looked very nice because it's totally covered in um, uh, some purple, it was covered in purple flowers. And I think the purple flowers was holding the house together. Sue was nodding her head. She remembers it very well. And then you went in the house. And it was rustica. It was really quite, quite amazing. Um, it was uh, very sort of basic. And uh, the kitchen cupboard doors were particularly rustic and looked very sad. Uh, one day... Sue Peasley came. This is when I wasn't married to die and I didn't have anyone who was able to tell me what looked good. Okay? One day, Sue Peasley came over with her painting gear, took off the doors, sanded them. Did you undercoat them? I don't... Yeah, you don't... You can't even remember, can you? 
It stuck in my head. And then you painted them, dried them, and you put them back onto... You didn't even trust me to put the doors back, did you? But I remember you chose the colour and it was fantastic. It was the best part of the house from there on. Probably now, every time I pass by it over at Wilberforce, it's still standing, probably because of the, uh, the vine over the top. But I'm sure indoors, those cupboard doors are still going to be there. Um, I would not describe Sue's visit as just a visit. When God visits, I would not describe it as just a visit either. Because when God visited in verse 80, 68, it says that he redeemed his people with his... It cost him when he visited. He redeemed us, and you know how he redeemed us. By sending his son Jesus to die on a cross so that we have been brought out of the slavery of sin. Now, I haven't actually spoke much about Jesus at that point yet, uh, have I? Because uh, it's, it's not actually mentioned yet, but it has. Because the Holy Spirit is preparing us by seeing how John's ministry is set up as to how important the one that he is pointing to his particular ministry is for us. In 69, God raises up the horn of salvation. And again, the horn, it's an Old Testament expression. Uh, in the Old Testament, the horn of uh, an ox is the place where they can defend themselves and attack. And in Psalm 18, verse 2, this word is used here in a description of God. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my mountain where I seek refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Zechariah identifies this horn of salvation, that is from Psalm 18, as someone who is from the house of David. Do you see David mentioned there? Which was, if you popped over into the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, that's the big point that he makes there of Jesus comes from the house of David, which is no surprise because all scripture is God-breathed, which includes Luke and Matthew and God in his amazing ability to see all things and bring all things together for his will and purpose comes together beautifully. In verse 72, Zechariah now brings up the covenant God made with Abraham. By the way, Abraham, Luke is fascinated. He's, he's got this thing about Abraham. In the Gospel of Luke and in Acts, he mentions Abraham 22 times. That's his fave Old Testament character. <clears throat> he's, he alludes to the making of the covenant, the special agreement between God and Abraham. At that time, his name was Abraham, which means exalted father, and then God calls him Abraham, which means father of many, which is all part of the promises. And this is how the covenant was made. Or actually, literally, this is how the covenant was cut. Genesis 15, 9. God said to Abraham, bring me a three-year-old cow a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abraham brought all these to God, split them down the middle, he cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other. 
but he did not cut up the birds. Presumably they were too small and be too messy. Birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. He's shushing them away. And as the sun was setting, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And suddenly a great terror and darkness descended on him. Something awesome, something spiritual was happening that terrified him. What's God going to do? And then in, this is in Genesis 15, verse 17, when the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals, the animals that had been cut up. To cut up the animals and put them apart and for the two parties of uh, an agreement, a covenant, they would walk between the cut animals. And the way of them doing that is actually saying, you've made a promise and I've made a promise. If either of us break the promise, then let that happen to us, what happened to the animals. And symbolically, in the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, God was walking through the covenant animals and making, cutting a covenant. It's as if he was saying, cross my heart and hope to die if I lie. That's very, very serious, isn't it? And on that day, the Lord made, cut a covenant with Abraham saying, <clears throat> I give this land to your offspring, that is his descendants, from the brook of Egypt to the Euphrates River, the land of the Kenites, Ken's not here tonight, is he? There you go, a whole branch. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Vegemites, the Marmites, all of these people. And God is giving Abraham's offspring, all the animals of Israel, all the animals, all the lands of Israel's traditional enemies, because that's what these people really were. They were the enemies of Israel. He's giving those enemies into the hands of God's people. When God made or cut the covenant, he literally cut the covenant and promised that you will have dominion over all of the enemies in the land that I'm going to give you. And cross my heart, hope to die if I'm lying to you, Abraham. At that point, it would be the very opposite of faith to say, can you imagine Abraham saying this? God, have you got something more reliable that I can depend on rather than just your word after he'd done that? That would be the ultimate spiritual stupidity, wouldn't it? Lack of faith and just lack of spiritual sense. Zechariah has actually come a long way from his first spiritually stupid question to now when he said his name is John that's a statement of faith that he's making verse 72 to 73 God shows uh, that they show us that God remembers that covenant when it says remembers it's that's God doesn't forget anything but what he's doing he's saying he activates what he promised that covenant to Abraham where he is still delivering God's people from their enemies. 
going back to Zechariah, 2,000 years ago, first century Palestine, it would be very easy to assume that Zechariah would have been thinking that the most recent enemy of Israel were the occupying Romans. I could easily imagine that's what was on his mind. But remember that what he's saying is also inspired by the Holy Spirit. So they are the actual words of God as well. And the Holy Spirit knows the spiritual reality behind every enemy of God's people. Maybe at different stages the Romans were. But that's far too small a picture of what they faced then as far as their enemy. And it's far too small a picture today for us to think that for Christians, our enemies are someone of a particular political persuasion. Or even you know, some tiny little thing like Russia. In God's power, it's a tiny little thing. God still knows the real enemies, not only in the first century, but in the 21st century in Australia. He knows the enemies of your soul. Left to our own devices, we are no match. The devil is real, the Bible says. And he hates you if you are a follower of Christ, if you are a child of God. He has evil intent for you. But you're also dealing with something else as well, aren't you? You brought it in with you. Sin, the heart state that rebels against God's right to rule our lives, which leads us to eternal separation from God unless he rescued us from the penalty of sin. And that's what we find in Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. You don't want to do that too boisterously, do you? But it's, it's not a... It's not a fun thing to call out the wages of sin is death but the free gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus our lord that's worth calling out isn't it and death which is a product of sin is also an enemy of mankind but the power of death has been defeated at the cross and at the resurrection of jesus those who are putting their trust in the Lord Jesus, the horn of salvation, are given the ultimate promises that God gave to Abraham and his children. We can be certain that God keeps his promises because he sent his son to make his promises possible. And like Zechariah, we can say, verse 74, and remember, he's saying this before the cross has happened. And probably at that stage, just before Jesus is born, since we have been rescued from our enemy's clutches, to serve him, to serve God without fear, in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days, unlike Zechariah, we can do this. We can serve God without fear because we are seeing this all historically from this side of the cross, what Jesus has already accomplished when Jesus has already done it. We can serve God without fear. What does that mean? Um, <clears throat> I think 
that I am a fairly fearful kind... Naturally, I'm a fairly fearful kind of character. Uh, the last time that it really was illustrated for me is when um, uh, Di and, and the uh, girls and I, we went to... Some of you will remember Australia's Wonderland and the pirate ship. Okay. Here I am, up on the top of the pirate ship. No way. I didn't get up there. I hold the bags while everyone else gets on. And there's Di. She's on the pirate ship. You know how that moment where it goes like that? And I'm just imagining my stomach going like that. And then this point where the pirate ship goes right up over the top and it, it suspends there. And there is Di, not holding on to the rail at all. She's strapped in. She's trusting in those straps. She's got her hands out, down. And I'm seeing all the loose change from everyone who's up there falling down all that way, thinking that could be Di. They came around. She survived. I'm like that. <clears throat> We can serve God without fear. My biggest problem, the penalty of sin, separation from God has already been dealt with. A Christian can joyfully serve God, <clears throat> not on the basis of earning acceptance, but just serving him grateful that I've got acceptance by what Jesus has already done. Religions can be easily summed up by one word with two letters in it. D-O. It's what you've got to do to get right with God and you'll never be sure if it's enough. Biblical Christianity, which is what we had um, demonstrated for us in the Lord's Supper tonight, is spelt this way. D-O. N E. Done. It's been done for us by Jesus on the cross. And that frees us up to be able to serve Him without fear. The kind of serving that we do is without fear, and also in verse 74 it says it's in holiness and righteousness. It's, it's not that. Um, well, now that um, God's uh, freed me up, I have no fears of anything. I don't do anything. No, actually, my whole life is now going to be holiness or reserved to God and doing right things for the right reasons. And that is because it pleases God. I want to please my Father. It's not to get into heaven. I've already got it. And God's purpose of his people having no fear is it frees us up to serve as God intends us to. Um, I don't know where I first read it, but someone apparently, they went through the Bible and they counted up every time no fear was mentioned in the Bible. And someone actually said, I haven't been able to count this up myself, but it comes to 365, which is uh, one command to not fear every day for a year. Um, now, I've been writing no fear in my Bible in the margins, uh, particularly after I've been uh, looking at uh, this passage and then just going through the Bible and just, and I've gone to Psalms and it's all over the place. Don't fear, don't fear, but not just don't fear. It's always don't fear because. There's a reason for not fearing. Uh, a few cautions with this. As you're going through the Bible, um, 
there are fears that are healthy, aren't they? You know, the Bible contrasts the fear of the Lord, which is a good fear when you understand it, with, uh, against unhelpful fears. Some fears uh, stop us from doing dumb or unnecessarily dangerous activities. Uh, some, fears, some fears may have underlying issues that really do need medical or other professional help. I really, do, I just want to stress that at the moment. Uh, I don't want to give a glossy sort of answer if, when you become a Christian. Don't fear, uh, because if the Bible never tells us to fear, not to fear, without telling us why. And so I'm not suggesting that you use it some like some mantra and just repeat over and over again in your head: "Don't fear, don't fear, don't fear." I think that's a really cheap pop psychology and it's also a really bad theology of not fearing just to repeat it and convince yourself don't fear it doesn't work it's not real you need to check out the context of the verses who is being spoken to in the passage and why you should always do that before you apply any verse so I've just got a challenge for you <clears throat> how about if this is something you think you'd be benefit from, benefit from going through not 365 days, but how about 30 days of reading some of those no fear passages, one a day, and just spending some time meditating on it and really thinking through why should I not fear and asking God to give you wisdom to help you free you up so that you might, of things that might be blocking you in serving Him. Uh, I was thinking what, what I'm going to do, and I've made this uh, offer in the previous services, I, I'm going to put up on our church Facebooks an, um, a page of those verses that you could actually use for 30 days. And if you're uh, not on any of our church Facebook or you don't do Facebook and I don't know what other sorts of things, so I'm going to be talking to some of our um, very incredibly in, um you know, tech people back there about how we can get it to you, um, I'll make you a hard copy that you can have for next week if you like hard copies. But uh, all the other things, I don't know what there is apart from Facebook. I know there's other things. I'm too old. don't know. Now, this, that, that's the, um, the song part. That's the part where Zechariah praises God for his salvation plan. And now he actually gets to talking about his son, John, for a couple of verses. And John is going to, verse 77, go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. He's quoting Jeremiah there, chapter 31, verse 34. How will John share this knowledge of salvation? It's in the way that he does his ministry. We jump ahead 30 years and we see John the Baptist at the river baptising people for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. And he's, he's telling people how you are supposed to repent. Some soldiers come up to him and say, how are we supposed to now live the life that shows that we are repenting? And he says, well, the first thing is just take your wage and don't rip off anyone anymore. Wow. That's pretty astounding sort of advice because all the soldiers were doing it 
You see, he's scratching at people's consciences, preparing the hearts of those who will turn to Jesus. And then one day, in John chapter 1, verse 29, it doesn't give the details of what he's doing. Maybe he's down at the river and he's baptising people. He goes, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world Aren't you glad we looked at Leviticus last term? This morning I I, I bunged it up by actually, for some reason, I was thinking Deuteronomy. And I said, aren't you glad we did Deuteronomy? And there's a couple of people go, yeah, yeah. No, we didn't do uh, Deuteronomy, we did Leviticus. Aren't you glad we did Leviticus? Does it come back now about the things that you've been learning in Leviticus? All those sacrifices, all the blood... The lamb that takes away the sin, the major purpose of the Old Testament comes to this point. Look at Jesus. That's what John's job would be. And he did it brilliantly. Look at the cross where justice and mercy collide. It's where sinners find forgiveness. John Stott wrote something I I really love. I, I think he captured this. Nobody is free who is unforgiven. If I were not sure of God's forgiveness, I could not look you in the face and I certainly could not look God in the face. But we have forgiveness through Jesus. And there's this beautiful section in verse 79 going on in Luke chapter 1 where it talks about the dawn from on high will, ah, there's this word again, visit us, visiting with a purpose. Um, now, depending on what version you've got, uh, the, uh, the Holman, it puts the dawn from on high. If you've got an ESV, it says the sunrise from on high. It's literally the rising of light. And of course, most times, the rising of light, you can see how that can mean the dawn, the sunrise. But it's also used as a metaphor uh, for the east, because the sunrise is in the east. So the Magi who came to visit The baby Jesus came from where the light rises. But this verse isn't talking about a normal dawn or a normal sunrise because it's a rising light from on high. That's an expression of heaven where God makes his home on high. The real dawn the real sunrise, the real light rising from on high comes from heaven. The Holy Spirit is guiding Zechariah's description of who is coming and it's Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus shines by his his words and his life and his death and his resurrection. He's guiding our feet now. We know where to walk and how to walk, and it's in the way of peace. That's where we find right at the end of our uh, passage, just before we have a little addendum about um, uh, John goes away, and uh, just before that, uh, we are to walk in, we will walk in the way of peace because of this rising light from heaven, who is Jesus. The modern Israeli greeting is still, over a couple of thousand years, shalom, which is peace. Well, 
It means more than that, actually. It can mean more than just an absence of strife. It can mean well-being or health or even completeness and safety and prosperity. Um, a popular Christmas card Bible verse is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For a I'm always nearly going to say it in the, um, uh, the RSV, which was the version that I memorised this, but I'm going to read it from the Holman. For a child will be born for us, a child will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Mighty God, Prince of Peace. When the Old Testament that was written mainly in Hebrew was translated into Greek, that word was picked up by the New Testament writers to talk about peace there as well. For example, here's one aspect of peace that we find in the New Testament, and it's, it's an objective reality in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God means it's something that God has provided us, and it's through the death of Jesus. That's an objective reality that we can look at and hold on to. But it also means, because of that fact, we can have peace within us as well. So we've got this beautiful verse in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, that says, And the peace of God, which passes all understanding or transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the subjective, expressive reality of the peace that we can have. Uh, friends, I have a, a poem that's very old, written by a guy who was an ex-slave trader. He was the one who wrote Amazing Grace, but he just couldn't stop writing. And I want to read out one of his other poems that I, I'm presuming someone's put it to music. Boy, I think it would be a great one for some of you guys to do music to have a go at. When on the cross, my Lord, I see, bleeding to death for wretched me, Satan and sin no more can move, for I am all transformed to love. His thorns and nails pierce through my heart, in every groan I bear a part. I view his wounds with streaming eyes, but see, he bows his head and dies. Come, sinners, view the Lamb of God, wounded and dead and bathed in blood. Behold his side, the venture near, the well of endless life is here. Here I forget my cares and pains. I drink, yet still my thirst remains. Only the fountainhead above can satisfy the thirst of love. Oh, that I could always feel, Lord, more and more, thy love reveal. Then my glad tongue shall loud proclaim the grace and glory of thy name. Thy name dispels my guilt and fear, revives my heart and charms my ear, affords a balm for every wound, and Satan trembles at the sound. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that Jesus brought us Thank you for the, the peace that comes from him. Thank you for sending John to point to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.